All right. Before I let you know what today's topic is, I want you to promise me you won't turn off and switch to another show because this topic is really important and it will very likely affect you, but it kind of sounds a little bit boring. It's not though, and it is important, as I said. All right. You ready? Stick with me here. Today, we're talking about the proposed changes to responsible lending obligations. Now, if you've consumed any media on this topic, then chances are you've heard that it's a bad thing. And well, I wouldn't blame you for thinking that removing responsible lending obligations is a bad thing. I mean, we all want banks to lend money responsibly, don't we? Do these proposed changes mean that the banks are going to be throwing throwing money at people willy-nilly? Are the most vulnerable members of our community going to be put in financial risk? Well, my short answer is, in the infamous words of public enemy, don't believe the hype. In this episode, I chat with a well-known finance figure here in Australia, Brett Mansfield, the CEO of Buyer's Choice. We're going to give you the real deal, the unsensationalized information on what responsible lending is. So what's the legislation all about? What are the proposed changes and how it will affect people looking to borrow money? So for example, for a home loan. We'll also talk about how it will affect the flow of credit. Welcome to the Dream Home Movement. This is your weekly dose of home and property inspiration, bringing you clever tips and advice from the very best experts and real life Renault stories with your host, Joe Violetta. Well, well done you. You made the decision to listen to this episode. You've gotten past the introduction. Good on you. We're going to learn about responsible lending today. And as I said, this is important and it will affect you if you are thinking of borrowing money for a home loan or refinance in the future. Speaking of home loans and refinances, let me introduce myself to you. If we haven't met before, hello, I'm Joe Violetta. As the fancy music introduction said, I'm the host of this show and I also co-own an award-winning business called Violetta Finance with my husband, Carl. And if you're a regular listener to the show, you might have met Carl before. You might be familiar with him. He's a mortgage broker. Now, let me tell you about today's guest. He is the CEO of Buyer's Choice. And Buyer's Choice is what's known as a sub-aggregator. So mortgage brokers need to sit under an aggregator and Buyer's Choice is a boutique aggregator that Carl is actually a member of. So he's a member of the Buyer's Choice member network. Now, Brett has a lengthy, has had a lengthy career, still having it, (laughs) in the mortgage and finance industry. He's worked for many years in um, with finance and mortgage lenders, aggregation and asset finance. Unlike many CEOs, he's really, really closely involved with his members, so the brokers that are part of the Buyer's Choice Network. He spends a lot of time guiding, coaching, um, and helping to develop the growth of the mortgage brokers who are part of the Buyer's Choice Network. He used to be the National Operations Manager and also acting CEO for Plan Australia, which is a very large aggregator um, here in Australia. Australia for mortgage brokers. So definitely has the chops and the experience to talk about this topic. And I am so looking forward to my chat with Brett. 
Welcome to the show, Brett. It's wonderful to have you join me. Thanks, Joe. Lovely to be here. And we're talking about responsible lending today and the proposed changes to responsible lending. So I think the best place to start would just be to make sure that we're all on the same page about what responsible the responsible lending obligations are. So what's the current state? Yeah, so maybe if I could just take us back a little bit uh, further than that to how responsible lending came about mm. in the first place. That'll help us understand why it exists in, in, in our marketplace. And it really came out of following the GFC. And through the GFC, it was determined that um, a lot of people got into trouble financially because they'd overcommitted themselves. And so the government went, well, maybe uh, we need to swing the responsibility for making sure people aren't overcommitted a little bit away from the consumers themselves because maybe they don't understand what they can afford. We'll swing it back towards the banks. And so that was then built into legislation around that. And, you know, and that's a good thing that uh, what we went from has been the consumers pretty much having to make their own call on whether they can afford a loan to a joint approach between the lender and the consumer and also the broker in the middle as well as being um, the person assisting the client to obtain their finance. So that was that was where it still started. And, and look, and that legislation still stands today. There's been actually not really um, much change to that. It's more the interpretation of it has changed over time. And that interpretation really kicked in with the Royal Commission. A lot come out of that. And, um, and one of the things that did come out of it was uh, uh, the, uh, the Royal Commissioner, Kenneth Hayne, um, took a view that um, there's actually nothing wrong with the legislation that's in place. It just needs to be enforced. That was his view. And then he... Uh, published his paper and that became the, uh, the position that ASIC, who are responsible for enforcement, uh, went off and had a look at it and issued what they call uh, his guidance notes. So it was called RG209. It was the guidance notes on how they saw those responsible lending requirements. And out of that, the key change uh, that has impacted consumers, banks and brokers alike is that there was an expectation that lenders and brokers would take a much greater level of responsibility for the consumer's capacity to pay back a loan. So could they afford it? So it shifted quite a long way. So it was basically no longer the the buyer's or the borrower's decision on if they could afford it. They had to go, okay, well, here's all my bank statements. Here's my credit card statements. Here's what I spend. Here's all my expenses categorised into 23 different categories. So massive amount of work for the consumer. And then what the bank and the broker had to do was go through all those bank statements and check it against what the borrower was saying to make sure it was true. Mm. And if it was inconsistent anyway, go back to the borrower and go, hey, Joe, you told me you only spend you know, $60 a month on shoes but it indicates to me here by looking at your bank statements, you've been getting into the Jimmy Choo's, um, 400 a month. Can you talk us through that? And you'd, you'd probably say, oh, look, it was a one-off purchase. But the pendulum swung so far that the bank would go, well, that's your proven spending history. That's what we're going to lend against. And you go, oh, no, but it was a one-off. I, I, I don't normally spend like that. And when I've got my mortgage, I'll change my behaviour and, ch- and spend differently. And this 
became a bit of a, a to and fro where the banks would still, because of ASIC's guidance, stand by that original um, view that what you spend is what you will continue to spend. The past is, is a guide to the future, uh, which we know is not correct. And this all culminated in what's called the Wagyu and Shiraz case where ASIC and Westpac went to court. And Westpac took a view that, well, we know that a, a family of two children with their children in public school need about this much to live on. That's a standard budget. Um, and if they're spending more than that, we know that they can bring that under control and, and decrease that in need. Um, and the ASIC took the view that no, their past behaviour or spending habits was a guide to the future. And, and the judge or the name of the case, the Shiraz and uh, the Wagyu and Shiraz case came about because the judge himself said, well, looking at all of this, he said, I could choose to eat the um, Wagyu steak every night and wash it down with the fine Shiraz. But if I have a mortgage, I may eat more modest fare. Basically saying that, you know, we're adults where we can make decisions on where we spend money. So that's a summary of the whole responsible lending piece and where it's the pendulum of responsibility swung over time. And it's it went it was too far towards the consumer to start with, and then it went too far towards the credit providers, and now it's sort of coming back to a sensible centre okay, where so both parties can take responsibility. Let's unpack that a little bit. First yeah. of all, for any listeners that aren't aware of what ASIC is, let's just go through that quickly. That's so that's a great question. So that's the Australian Securities and Investments Commission. They're responsible for overseeing financial activity in Australia. Great. Good. Okay. So basically... About 10 years ago, some legislation was brought into place. I think that's called the National Consumer Credit Protection Act. That is absolutely correct. The NCCP is its yeah. uh, known. Yeah. And that was brought in so to try to limit the amount of risky loans that were being um, approved or, or you know, given out, I suppose. The way that um, we were going to try to prevent those risky loans was putting the onus on the lender to make sure that the information that they're getting from the borrower is correct. So lenders were having to interrogate the information that borrowers were giving them. So they actually had to inf verify that information. And that meant that the lenders bared the responsibility. So if incorrect or misleading information was provided to the lenders, they, they bore the responsibility of that, as you were saying, the pendulum swung really quite far to the lenders being responsible. And to the point of being forensic, and mm. you know, we had examples where um, you know a person would have a, a $12 lunch at the same takeaway every week and the bank asked questions about what that expense was and what it was for, which is just crazy. Lenders face, because of this legislation, lenders face a lot of prescriptive obligations. And I was actually reading on um, the Treasury fact sheet that lenders face about 100, close to 100 pages of guidance advising wow. them of how to meet their obligations under responsible mm. lending obligations. Now, that yeah. is onerous. That's yeah. massive. And 
so lenders are, you know, they're a bit frightened because they're like, oh my gosh, all this responsibilities is coming back on us. You know, if the borrower has provided false or misleading information, we're responsible. So many lenders have put really detailed and lengthy credit approval processes in place aimed just solely at meeting these um, these requirements. Yeah, I think it's important, to, and it's a really important point, Joe, and, and just to understand too that um, when we talk about lenders' credit assessment, we're not talking about individuals sitting down with a file in front of them, flicking through pages. Because of the volume of transactions that they're required to process, they've got to build automated systems. And the more complex the investigation, the more difficult and expensive it is to automate a system. So what happens is then uh, rather than judgment being used to make a call on some of the outliers, the system's built to only allow a certain type of um, loan application through all the filters to reach approval. So a lot of loans end up getting rejected that would normally be approved if a human sat down and assessed it in a, I guess, a common sense manner. Um, so what this meant was people who would normally qualify for a loan could no longer get one. Mm. And this is one of Josh Reidenberg's and the federal government's concerns and the Reserve Bank's concerns now is that lending is too tight. It's too hard to get a loan. So the economy then ends up not progressing as, as well as it should. Yes. Yeah. And um, just for anyone who's not familiar, Josh Frydenberg is our treasurer. Let's talk about the proposed changes. Now, before we do, though, I want to make a really important, this is going to be a tricky word for me to say, differentiate. I want to differentiate between two things because it's really important, right? And these two things are responsible lending obligations, which are parts of a piece of legislation. Okay. So, Responsible lending obligations are part of the NCCP Act that Brett and I spoke about before, righty? But that's not the same as the actual act of lending money responsibly. Mm, that's a verb. Correct. That's a doing thing. So that's an action, right? So what we're not talking, what Josh Frydenberg is not talking about removing the need for lenders to re- lend responsibly, we're not getting rid of that. What we're talking about is getting rid of parts of a piece of legislation that are called responsible lending obligations. I think that's really important. And I, I feel that that's where some of this sensational, sensationalist type reporting has come from, that, you know, people are misunderstanding these proposed changes as getting rid of the act of lending responsibly. Would you agree yes. with that? Absolutely, Joe, spot on. And uh, and as a, as a credit officer back in the day when I uh, worked for a bank, when I would look at a loan application, uh, and this is pre-automation, so I actually physically looked at them, capacity to pay or that this piece that we're talking about was one component only of everything that was considered. Sure, someone has to be able to afford a loan and yes, Um, expenses move with uh, priorities. But a whole range of other things are looked at as well. There's the, um, of course, the credit history of the individual. What's that been like? So what's their character? Are they people that pay on time or not pay on time? 
Um, how much collateral or how much deposit are they putting in? How much, uh, as we call it, skin in the game have they got in this transaction themselves? The more that the client puts towards a purchase and the less the bank puts towards it, you know, the more the client's engaged in making sure that they hang on to that because they've put their hard-earned into it. Um, what's the client's stability like? Have they um, moved around a lot of places and jobs? Have they been transient or have they been stable? All of these factors go into um, into the decision. What's the what's the security? Is it a, a property in a mining town that's really hard to sell or is it a, a flat mill would, that would sell really quickly? You know, all of these things are considered. So this piece, this responsible lending uh, piece, as you say, is only one small component of the whole decision-making process. So what do the changes mean? My understanding is that, you know, as we discussed before, it really is just shifting some of the responsibility. So putting the onus of providing, um, removing some of the onus from the lender, some of the, putting the onus back onto the borrower to provide accurate information. Yeah, look, I think a, a really um, good way to look at it is that it's gone back to being a shared responsibility. You know, as an adult borrower, I need to make a decision on if I can afford a loan. And if I think I can, I should then go to my broker and say, hey, this is what I'd love to do. This is my dream. Can you help me find credit? And then they would help me package that up with the information I provide them to put to a bank for a bank to make that shared decision in that affordability. The bank will still assess for affordability. It just means they won't have to go through 23 lines of expenses and work out what I have for lunch every Friday. It might <laughs> make it a bit easier. Yeah. I think that's a really good way of explaining it. And also, I, I, I want to point out that since the introduction of the NCCP and the responsible lending obligations, the government has, in addition to that, and as you mentioned, introduced a number of significant changes to other areas of, of the law, and they have strengthened con consumer protection in the credit system. So there's lots mm -hmm. of there's lots of protections in place and we're just looking at removing some parts of a, of, of a certain act of a piece of yeah. legislation. Yeah. As you mentioned, we still need to do all the necessary checks, um, but we're not drilling down and interrogating declared expenses. And I, I really liked uh, that you raised the Wagyu and Shiraz court case. And now we're sort of getting into our opinions about the proposed mm. changes. I agree with you. I really feel that it is up to the borrower to control what, what they're spending. And I think these changes give borrowers control and agency. As grown-up adult people, you know, mm. we, we have some control, uh, you know, control over our discretionary spending. It should be my decision if I want to have Netflix, Stan, and buy Jimmy Choo's every week now, mm -hmm. and then it should be my decision if I want to do something, I want to achieve a goal, I want to purchase a commercial property or an investment property or upgrade my home, then it should be my decision that I change my discretionary spending as a result in, in line with that so I can service the loan as a grown-up woman. You know, like Absolutely. I, I want to be responsible um, for that. And, and I think that's part of the frustration that, that's, that's been creeping in this year into lending is that, you know, borrowers are 
who have not been successful in applying for loans are going, well, hang on a second. You, you, you're not basing this decision on reality. My reality is completely different. Uh, I, can, I can change the way I spend. I can focus my energies on a different objective if I need to. Mm. Um, and look, I personally, uh, you know, I enjoy having that right. Yeah. I don't want it taken away from me. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I will just quickly say, if you hear any funny breathing or noises in the background, it's not me breathing heavily. I'm still working from home under Melbourne mm-hmm. restrictions. So um, please forgive me for any background noises. This has been a common theme for the last couple of episodes of the podcast. <laughs> and Brett is, we're talking about really sensible stuff right now. Mm-hmm. And we've got little six-year-old Marcus standing next to me, pulling faces at Brett, trying to get him <laughs> off his game. Let's just reiterate, okay? Lenders will still have Credit Act laws they must adhere to and they still must lend responsibly. Yeah, so so, um, if I can just say banks and lenders are not in the business of selling houses. They want to lend money to people to pay that money back within the timeframe of the loan. That's their objective. That's how... They get the best outcome they're seeking and they, they have customers that are happy and get their best outcome. That's the objective. And that's what everyone's trying to aim towards. And this pendulum, as, as I spoke of earlier, will continue to swing in the future. It will settle in a place today and then at some point in the future there will be a shift that will make it swing one way or the other again. So it's a never-ending change and... Things that could change in the future will be um, uh, if there's an increase in financial literacy in our community, for example. That would be a fantastic thing to see. Um, We all, you know, you think about how your children learn now about how to manage money. You know, it comes from parents. And as you go through generations, if parents are not confident in their management of money, then that's what they'll teach their their children as well when it becomes a bit of a vicious circle. So that could change. Uh, the, the, we, we live in a, a country where we have you know, reasonably high house prices compared to other countries. So the amount of people, money people borrow to get into a house is typically a greater multiple of their salary. So we're a higher risk country from that perspective. We're also living through an extremely low interest rate period where the cost of borrowing money is so much lower so there's less, less risk there as well. So all of these things as they change will move that pendulum around as well. A part of these proposed changes that I, I was really pleased to, to see and that was how vulnerable members of our community will be protected even further as part of these changes. So we've got the changes to, you know, the, the scrutiny on expenses and the onus going on to the borrower as well. And that, that really applies to when we're looking at residential mortgages and, and that sort of thing, I would imagine mostly. But another part that hasn't been that highly publicised, and I feel like it should be, is that there will be um, increased protect. So there'll be introducing reforms that will increase the protection for consumers who access small amount credit contracts and consumer leases. So why is this so important? Payday lenders. 
Exactly. Mm. So stuff like payday lending, this is so important. And I know anyone who knows a little bit about my background would know that I used to work for the federal government. Part of my role meant that I had a really, really close contact with extremely vulnerable members of our our community. And what I saw time and time again is that they were in financial distress and to help them temporarily get out of that financial distress, they would access payday loans, which would place them in further financial distress when they had to pay that back, their high credit, their high interest, I should say. And it was just an like you were saying before, a vicious cycle. And Mm. so I'm really pleased to see, I'd like some more detail on it, but I'm really pleased to see that there are going to be some reforms to further protect people that access those those sort of loans. So that's another really good news um, story. Absolutely, Jo. And look, and I think one way to look at that, when we talked about mortgages um, and uh, people borrowing a fairly high multiple of their annual salary to buy a home, yeah, we're looking at maximums of six or seven times annual salary as a typical borrowing uh, level for a home. Now, if you're talking about payday lending, you're borrowing the equivalent of a you know a week's salary potentially at an interest rate that's not three percent; it's more like twenty-three percent, and it just becomes this vicious cycle, which is really hard to break. Then, really hard to break. It's a difficult position to be in. And, and yes, I think at that vulnerable end, it's really good to have some additional protection in place. Absolutely. So what does this mean for people who are wanting to get a home loan, for example? Or another way for me to phrase this question is, how will these changes affect the flow of credit? Okay, right. So, so assuming they all come to pass, by the way, so this is only a proposal still. Can I just make that point? This still has to get through the Houses of Government and uh, through the Senate and, um, and uh, the government's flagging that they'd like to bring, in, bring it in by March 2021. So let's assume that all happens. Yeah. So what will happen is then the banks, the, the lenders will, who, who all went and spent a lot of money on IT and systems and processes to really tighten them up and, and become more forensic, will now be able to relax some of those. So what that will mean for them is that the amount of work needed or time needed to take a loan from application received to approval will reduce. For the broker, it will save them time because they will also not have to go through those 23 light items and and check it against um, statements to make sure that uh, the client does actually know what they're spending. So that will save them time and that will make that part of the process faster. And then for the customer, it'll save a significant amount of time because they won't have to scratch around, find their statements, find this, find that. They'll be able to just still sit down and have a a responsible approach to what their expenses are. Can they afford a loan? And they'll be able to put that together in a much easier process with the supporting information needed by the bank. So it'll really speed up turnaround time on, on loan applications. It should do. It should do. And it'll, it'll reduce the amount of time by all the parties in their preparation for an application and it will speed up the amount of time to approval as well. 
That's excellent. You know, I've spoken to brokers and I've spoken also to some of my contacts at, at different lenders and they've reported that expense verification can take up to half the time of a loan application. So yeah. it will be a significant time saving. And I just want to give one real world example as well, um, where I think not only will it speed up the application and approval process, but as you mentioned before, people that can actually service a loan that were being, loans applications were being rejected previously, mm. will, you know, be able to get loans approved um, likely. And one example here is, uh, and this is a common common issue under responsible lending, is say someone gets a pre-approval on their home loan. So, you know, and they, they put in an offer on a home and then like everything's going awesome for this person. They put in an offer on a home, it's been accepted. And then the job that they've been in for say a year or two, they get a promotion. Now, wouldn't you say this is happy days? You would mm. say this is happy days. Under responsible lending, what commonly happens is because the, the borrower's income has changed, even though it's changed for the better, it's increased, some lenders will say, well, we can't honour that pre-approval anymore because the income's changed. And then they need to reconsider the loan and rewrite it. Meanwhile, someone's put an offer in. <laughs> on a home and they could miss out on that home because they got a promotion. So that's just one example of the kind of trickiness and just the, the illogicalness. That's not even a word, but I, I'm, I'm coining that phrase, the illogical. Yeah. Can I give you one more example, please? Mm. <clears throat> so a customer uh, has a, a home loan and it's, they're affording it, they're paying their repayments and they're meeting all their commitments but it's at a high rate and they go and see their broker and the broker goes, yeah, yeah, look, we can find you a product that does everything you need, but the rate's less. We can save you interest here and go through the process. But the customer doesn't meet the new lender's criteria because of, because of the expenses verification piece. Even though they're already paying a higher amount to the current lender and they're paying it on time every month and they haven't missed a payment and their credit's good, they're unable to apply for a loan that's got a lower rate because they don't meet the criteria for a new loan. Even though they're not, even borrowing, they're not borrowing any more money, same amount. So we get this situation, which is crazy, where our brokers are not able to help customers get a lower interest rate because of this legislation. Doesn't make sense doesn't make sense at all. I will be watching this story very closely and hoping that these changes get, I'm editorialising here, but I hope these changes are passed um, and it comes into effect in March. Brett, thank you so much for coming on the show. Now, if people want to get in contact with you, if they'd like to learn more about Buyer's Choice, how can they do that? Okay, great. Uh, thanks, Joe. Um, look, they can uh, find us on the uh, on the internet, our website, buyerschoice.com.au. Um, our contact details are there. And I'd quite love to hear from anyone, even if it's just for a chat or a question, uh, please feel welcome to reach out and uh, give me a call or an email. Thanks so much, Brett. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for joining us on the Dream Home Movement. Be sure to come over and say hi on Facebook and Instagram. I hope that your Dream Home projects are going well and I look forward to chatting with you again next week.